Amen. Y'all ready to get in the Word this morning? All right, turn your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. This morning we're looking at uh, verses 20 through 35. We're spending four weeks in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. There's just so much here. And today is uh, part one of three weeks in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Actually, it's the second week, but we're calling today part one. And the title of my message this morning is, He Will Triumph. Then next week, the title of my message is going to be, Raised to Life. Go on with the theme of the chapter. And then part three, which will be in three weeks, is, um, is we will not all sleep. We will not all sleep. There's coming a day where this world's going to be rocked. And Jesus Christ will come again. We believe in the rapture of the church. We believe in the parousia, the second coming. But we're going to dive more into that in two weeks. But this morning's uh, text is, is God is awesome and he will triumph. So let's read Let's read the first five or six verses and, and, and see where the text is leading us, and then I'll get into my teaching. Amen? Amen. All right, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses, uh, verse 20. But now Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who are asleep. For since by a man came death, by a man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive, but each in his own order. Christ the firstfruits, after that those who are Christ at his coming. Then comes the end, when he hands over the kingdom to the God and Father, when he has abolished all rule and all authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy that will be abolished is our greatest enemy, death. Let's pray. Lord God, thank you for your word. Thank you for the simple, plain, straightforward truth of it. Lord, let it sink deep into our hearts. Change our hearts, change our minds, and, and help us to see how awesome and magnificent you are. In Jesus' name I pray, Father. Amen. As I was preparing my sermon this week and looking at this text, I couldn't help but to notice key words throughout this whole entire chapter. It is so loaded. Uh, his resurrection, the kingdom, the authority, the power, uh, Jesus will reign. Uh, phrases like, he will abolish death. I immediately got on my phone, I texted Dina, and I said, Dina, I need you to play um, Awesome God this Sunday. Because that's what was just coming at me as I'm reading this whole entire passage. Yes, we're studying and we're looking at the resurrection, Christ's resurrection and the effects of his resurrection from the dead and how it affects us. But I can't help as I'm studying this passage because it's so rich and so deep to think how awesome God is and how he will triumph. The word awesome means magnificent, amazing, impressive. And that's what our God is. He is magnificent. He is amazing, and he is impressive. And, and then the phrase, he will triumph. He will triumph. That word triumph means to achieve victory. It means to be successful. And that's exactly what Christ will do. And nothing in this world can thwart that plan. In ancient times, a Roman triumphal procession is what they called it, is when a conquering king would win a battle. He would come back into the city, and there would be a royal parade for him. 
He would be on a chariot led by uh, white horses, lions, tigers, elephants. There would be an aroma in the air that they would feel. The people would be laying down their arms and, and praising and giving, celebrating this uh, ancient Roman general's victory over the conqueror. It would be a procession. There would be a standing ovation. This was what an ancient Roman triumphal procession looked like, okay, back then and that day. Well, listen to Colossians 2.15 at the cross. Colossians 2.15 says, He disarmed the rulers and authorities, and he made a public display of them, having triumphed over them through Jesus Christ. He disarmed the rulers and authorities. We're going to talk more about that in that text. We're going to see what Jesus did at Calvary, who he disarmed, who he stripped of authority. And it says he made a public display of them. Back in the ancient world, when they would do this triumphal procession, many times the conquering king would have the people he conquered, he would have them bound in chains. And he would lead them in triumphal procession. Their heads would be bowed, and they would be going like this right here to show exactly who he conquered. And that's what Jesus has done to the demonic powers and to the principalities of this world. He stripped them of their power. And, and, he, and he's made a, as Colossians 2.15 says, it says, he made a public display of them through his victory at Calvary. And ultimately, the theme of my sermon is, from Colossians 2.15, it says, he has triumphed over them. And we need to understand that. So many Christians walk around in defeat and not in victory because they're focused on their own circumstances. We need to take our focus off our circumstances and place them on Jesus. Place them on the King of kings and the Lord of lords because he has triumphed. And no matter what we face in life, we can follow him in triumphal procession and, and, and join in his victory through his resurrection from the dead. And the Father, many people think Christianity is just a religion. Well, that's just your religion. That's just your beliefs in life. No, it's not that. It's more than that. Christianity is the Father inviting us to partake of the triumphal victory through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ to walk in that victory, and to follow our king because he has won the battle. Amen? He won the battle. Amen. The battle was won 2,000 years ago. And we need to let that sink in deep. If people, caught, if people caught one glimpse of glory, if people caught one glimpse of the truths of the Bible, they, they, they see it as just religion. But if they caught one glimpse of the reality of the truth of Scripture, they would come running to Jesus. They, 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 they would come running to him. They would throw off their darkness, and they would let nothing stand in the way. Think about what he offers in his word. He offers complete forgiveness of sin. He offers us eternal life. What can be bigger than that? Amazing, amazing God. I'll never forget when I took the Bible serious, when I really said, okay, I got to take this thing by the horns. I got to understand this. I got to process this. When I took the Bible serious, I was like, oh my goodness. He forgives everything. He forgives everything. He offers me eternal life. And I was like, wow. How long am I going to be gone for when I leave this life? 
forever. There's nothing more important than what Jesus offers this world through his death and resurrection. Y'all ready to look at the text? Let's look at it. Verse 20 says, But now Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who are asleep. The first thing we looked at last week, verses 1 through 19, the Apostle Paul established the fact of Jesus' resurrection from the dead. And now he's just bringing it to a culmination at the beginning of verse 20. He says, but now Christ has been raised from the dead. It's a fact. He says, the first fruits of those who are asleep. Now, you go back to the Old Testament. What's up with the first fruits? When the Israelites entered the promised land, God told them, as you grow your harvest and you grow your crops, you are to bring the first fruits to the temple, present them to the Levites, in, in essence, presenting them to the Lord. So the farmers would go out there, look at their crops. Up, oh, it's not ready yet. They'd go out there a week later. Up, oh, it's not ready. Then finally they would go out there and be like, oh, I see the first fruits. They're coming up. And they would take the first fruits, that's the first takings of the crop, and they would present them to the Lord. That's what the first fruits was. The, the first fruits was the, the first portion of the crop. The portion of the crop that was presented was a pledge. It was a guarantee. It was a foretaste of what was to follow. So as they looked at the first fruits from this harvest field of grain, they'd be like, oh man, this is nice. This field right here is going to present the best crop. This, 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 this field over here is the bomb. It's the best. Whatever, whatever the character of the first fruit was, would be the character of the rest of the fruit because it represented all that. Now, looking at verses 20, and I'm going to talk about verse 23 also because it talks about the first fruits. It says, Jesus is our first fruit. What's he saying there? What, what is this, what's up with this Jesus is our first fruit deal? It means this. Jesus is the pledge and the guarantee of your resurrection and my resurrection. He has been resurrected first, and he has gone before us. And as believers in Jesus, because he's the first fruits, we will follow him into eternity. And our resurrection is guaranteed by the fact of his resurrection being first and then ours to follow. So that brings me to my point of what was resonating in my heart this week. And it's this, we will triumph because Jesus triumphed. I'm going to repeat that. You will triumph not because of your own power, not because of your own doings, not because of your own thing that you do, but you will triumph because Jesus triumphed. Especially when it comes to the resurrection. It takes away the fear of death. It lets us know why we're here on this earth. Amazing. Let's look at verses 21 and 22. You have two people talked about in verses 21 and 22. It says, uh, For since by a man came death, by a man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. Two people here. Two Adams, we like to call them. talks about back in the book of Romans. You have Adam and you have Jesus. Adam brought sin into the world, brought death. You, you want to get upset with someone or something, or something you like to get upset with God? Why is there sin in the world? Why is there evil? Why is there bad things that happen? Why is there death in the world that breaks, breaks our hearts? It's on us, guys. 
It's on our ancient, 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 ancient grandfather, Adam. We rebelled. He rebelled. And that sin has been passed down to us. Paradise was lost. Remember when Adam and Eve was created in the Garden of Eden, it was eternal life. But their rebellion brought the fall. And paradise was lost in Adam. So now we have the second Adam that comes along. The Lord Jesus Christ. And what does verse 21 and 22 teach us about Jesus? He brings the resurrection and he brings new life. Now, how about this paradise thing? How about this eternal life thing? Hang tight. Hold on. It's coming. It's coming. It's the promise of his word. Paradise will be restored. Eternal life will be restored. One day we'll be in his presence in all his glory. Jesus conquers man's greatest fear which is death. Nobody wants to die. I don't want to die. I want to live a long life. I want to live till I'm ancient and old, and I've got Daniel's grandchildren sitting on my lap on a rocking chair on the front porch. Okay? But I'm not promised that. And I have to understand, as well as you have to understand, there's an eternity waiting us. And there's nothing more important than our eternal salvation. And as we follow the triumphal king, the Lord Jesus Christ, we will live in that same victory and in that same triumph. Amen. So verses 21 and 22, you have the two Adams. You have Adam who brought sin and death. You have Jesus who brings the resurrection and new life. One lost paradise, one regains paradise. Let's look at verse 23. Uh, great verse here. But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits. After that, those who are Christ at his coming. A couple things here. One is Christ was the first to be raised from the dead in a glorified, eternal, resurrected body, um, each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits. After that, talking about me and you and all Christians that have, that have lived throughout the ages, those who are Christ at his coming. What's he talking about at his coming? He's talking about the parousia, the visitation of the Lord. He's talking about the rapture. First Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 16 and 17 talks about it. It says, For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven, and the voice of the archangel. And we, you and I, according to verses 16 and 17, are going to be caught up. There's going to, there's going to be a mass evacuation, if you want to call it, of believers. In the twinkling of an eye, they're going, to be, they're going to be gone. That is when the culmination of this harvest of the first fruits will take place, is the rapture. And we believe it. We believe it because it's taught and clearly presented in the Word of God. The, um, in verse 23, those who are Christ at his coming, talking about the rapture of believers. It's going to happen. It's coming. And it's part of God's redemptive plan. It's when you, it says, the Bible says, the dead in Christ shall rise first, then we who are alive shall be caught up. We will receive a glorified body. And the first fruits, Jesus being the first fruit in his resurrected body, will return and give us brand new resurrected bodies. I don't know about you, but that's big thoughts. That's big thoughts, big thinking. It's the clear teaching of God's word. And, and, and that's what makes him so awesome. That's what makes our God an awesome God. No other religion or religious leader has conquered death. No other, no other religious leader has risen from the dead except one, the Lord Jesus Christ. He defeated death. Verse 24, getting into some eschatology here study of last things. It says, then the end will come. What's he talking about? Then the end will come. He's talking about the end of the sinful age. 
the end of the sinful age, when God will draw a curtain and sin will be brought to an end. Sin will be no more. One day we'll live and we'll have true eternal life in our resurrected bodies. Verse 24, then it comes the end when he hands over the kingdom to the God and Father when he has abolished all rule and all authority and power. And he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. Let's go back and look at this. It says, he hands over the kingdom. The kingdom of God is basically the rule and reign of God. The rule and reign of God. Right now, he's ruling and reigning in our hearts. Right now, by the Holy Spirit, he's ruling and reigning in our hearts. And it's unstoppable. It can't be thwarted. It's eternal. But check this out. One day, it's going to go from the unseen spiritual to the physical where we can see it in what we call the millennial reign of Christ. The next prophetic event we believe is the rapture, followed by a seven-year tribulation period, then followed by a, a literal 1,000-year reign of Christ on this earth. My friend, democracy will come to an end, and it will be a theocracy where Jesus rules and reigns in righteousness and justice. Um, it's the millennial reign of Christ. If you want to study it, it's found in Revelation chapter 20, verses 2 through 7. It says, Satan will be bound into the abyss. You and I will rule and reign with the Lord Jesus Christ. And we will be with him forever. Do you see how glorious and how awesome our God is? And how amazing he is? And how awesome this plan that God has put in place through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ? You and I get to partake of it. Mind-blowing. Mind-blowing. Amazing. Let's continue in verse 24. Uh, it says, when he hands over the kingdom to the God and Father, it says when he has, here it is, talking about um, the principalities I was mentioning earlier, beginning of my sermon, in verse 24, when he has abolished all rule and all authority and all power. What, what has Jesus abolished in, in all rule and all authority and all power? Demons. He stripped them of their power by the blood of Jesus in his death and resurrection. Principalities. The um, the ungodly world systems, those things that are opposed to God, he will bring those ultimately to an end in the millennial kingdom when he rules and reigns. And then it says in verse 25, it says, for he must reign until he has put all the enemies under his feet. The, uh, going back to ancient times, the ancient kings and emperors, their subjects would be seated below them after they defeated them in victory, you know what they would do to them as they're seated below them, maybe laying on the ground, sitting in a chair? They would put their foot on their throat. And you know what they were saying? You are conquered. You are conquered. Verse 25, he must reign until he has put all enemies under his feet. That's what he does. Jesus will triumph over evil. We see evil in the world today. We see atrocities. We see sinful things happening. But one day, Jesus is going to triumph and he's going to remove all traces of evil, all traces of sin as we go into the eternal kingdom. It's going to be amazing. And then, uh, where are we at? Verse 26. It says, The last enemy that will be abolished is death. 
Is that not God's eternal plan? Is that not God's eternal plan? Jesus will be exalted. Jesus will be Lord. And everything will bring him glory and honor. But also, on top of that huge benefit for you and I, is this. Death will be abolished. Death will be abolished. Death will be destroyed. Death will cease to exist. No more heartbreaks. No no more families ripped apart by death. Because he will abolish it in the kingdom. Let me just say this. I hate death. I hate death. I can't stand it. Don't like the idea of it. It's not pleasant. It breaks heart. I don't see nothing good in it except to be absent from the body to be present with the Lord. But still, the relationship I have with my wife, I love her so much. I want to be with her. My children, I love them so much. I want to be with them. I can't stand the thought of losing one of them. And, and I'm sure they can't stand the thought of losing me. But we just, it's just something so unnatural about death. It hurts our hearts when we lose a loved one. That's why we cry. That's why we mourn, because it hurts. We don't like it. We weren't meant to like it, but Jesus is going to abolish that death, and we will never have to deal with it again. Can I get an amen? Amen. Amen. That's amazing. That's amazing. This is why Paul says in uh, Romans 1.16, he says, this helps us understand why he says this. He says, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God under salvation. Because Paul understood all these biblical truths in Scripture. He was blown away. That's why he lived his whole life sharing the gospel and taking it to people because he was blown away at these amazing truths of the Bible that many times people try to steer around because they're hard to understand and they're hard to get our minds wrapped around. The thought of the rapture and eternal life and heaven and things that are eternal. Sometimes it's hard to get our minds wrapped around because we don't ever think about them. But we need to because they... Those things, those eternal things, are what make the gospel so glorious and so beautiful and so magnificent. And those eternal things is what lifts our hearts when when we're down and we're out and we need to be lifted up is understanding that God is awesome and he will triumph. He will triumph. Um, Let's look at verse verse 27 and 28. Everything's under subjection to the Father. But the Father is not subjected to all these things, is the thesis of 27 and 28. Let's look at it. For he has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when he says all things are put in subjection, it is evident that he is accepted who put all things in subjection to him. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to the one who subjected all things to him, so that God may be all in all. Jesus Christ is Lord. He's on the throne. He, he is um, the leader, the orchestrator, the one who's organizing the church. But at the, and he's in charge. But one day, Jesus, after he's saved his bride, he's going to present everything back to the Father. Everything's going to be subjected to the Father. We see in this the relationship in the Trinity between the Father and the Son, where the Son's going to give things back to the Father and let things be subjected to him in this eternal, amazing kingdom. It's awesome. Okay. The next verse, y'all ready to tackle the next verse? This, the, the next verse is one of the most difficult verses in the Bible. This, this verse is, um, I've read, there's almost, uh, 
I, I, I'm serious. I'm, I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm not exaggerating, okay? There's almost 400 different interpretations. So y'all ready to go through all 400? <laughs> I'm just kidding. There's so many. But yeah, let's tackle this one of the most difficult verses in the Bible. This is one of the most difficult verses. Let's look at it, verse 29. Otherwise, what will those do who are baptized for the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why then are they baptized for them? Now, what in the world is the Apostle Paul talking about here? What, is this, what, what does this mean? You know, there's so many different interpretations. You know, I'm not 100% sure, but I can give you my angle and what I see in the verse and, and, and give you my interpretation of it. There's many great interpretations of this verse. There's many bad interpretations. But inter- here's my interpretation of this verse. Is this. Is, uh, first off, let me tell you this. Let me tell you what the verse does not mean. The, the, this verse does not mean that there's, no, that there's a baptism for the dead. It doesn't mean that once someone's passed away, that someone here on earth can go through a water baptism and it saves that person that's already stepped into eternity. Hebrews 9.27 says what? It's appointed once a man to die and then face judgment. Your eternal destiny, all people's eternal destiny, will be established here on this earth before they breathe their final breathing breath. You know, even, even a living person, even a person that's alive, cannot have salvation by being water baptized. That's the ultimate, that's what the, the Word of God teaches. Salvation comes by what? Repentance and faith by believing and trusting in Christ. And like I said, there's over 400 interpretations. Let me just give you a couple of principles as you look at this verse and as you study it. Um, first off, we need to consider context. The context is the Apostle Paul is establishing the fact of a future resurrection. Okay, All of 1 Corinthians 15, he's, a, he's, he's, he's making this case for the resurrection, and he's establishing the fact that there's a future resurrection. As you look at verse 29, my second principle is this. Notice the words it uses. It uses the words those, they, and them. And that's important because what we don't see in this verse is we, I, you. Okay? So he's talking about those, they, them, not we, I, you. With these principles in place, here's my take on the verse. The Apostle Paul is talking to the Corinthians, and they're looking at a people group. They're looking at a people group there in in Corinth. There was a city about 50 miles north of Corinth. I'm not going to pronounce it right, but the Eleusides that that practiced this. They believed in in, um, having rituals and having practices after people had passed that would help those people who had stepped into eternity. So I believe that they are, um, they are looking at this people group who, who are indeed making an attempt, not biblical, not, not true, not correct, who are baptizing for the dead. You see, in the ancient world, as, as in today, there is a universal belief in the afterlife. Nobody believes that death is the end. Everybody believes that there's, there is life beyond the grave. There's this thing within the human heart, and it's been with us since the very beginning of time, and it's even with us today, that longs for eternity. 
And that's in all people. And I believe what Paul is doing here, he's pointing to a different people group and saying, hey, um, them, they, those people, are ba- they believe, they even believe in a future resurrection, in a life after death. But as we saw earlier in this chapter, he was tackling one of the issues is there was people at the church at Corinth that didn't believe in the resurrection. So he's like, Paul's like, hey, those people believe in the resurrection, but some of you don't. And he's pointing out their error. Basically what the Apostle Paul is saying in this verse, he's saying, look, Corinthians, even they believe in the resurrection, and some of you are denying it. Ultimately, in this passage, in the context here, um, Paul is defending the belief in the resurrection. Now, there's many other good interpretations. We could talk about how people replace, use the word baptism in relation to a person getting saved and, and salvation, and that is a word that has been used throughout church history. But I be- that's my take. Now, if you want to go study the other 399, <laughs> go for it. It's a great study. Uh, we can't be dogmatic. It, it is a very challenging verse, a very uh, difficult verse. But you just have to pull the principles you can, which is, who's he talking to? I don't believe he's talking to the, he's talking to the church at Corinth, but he's saying, look at those people. And uh, I believe that's what he's saying. So, Paul is defending the belief in the resurrection throughout this whole entire chapter. In light, here we go, guys, here's my challenge to you. In light of that great fact of a future resurrection, how do we respond How do we respond today in 2017 to know to be absent from the bodies, to be present with the Lord, to know there's coming a day where he will come again in the rapture, to know that there's life beyond the grave? How do we respond? I always say this, but I want to pull it from the text, but I want to preface it with this. We live our lives in complete surrender to him. We live our lives in complete surrender to him. In light of the sacrifice that he made for us, let's give our lives back to him. Amen? Let's give our lives back to him. But how do you respond? I want to give you five responses. Um, I could give you a whole bunch of reasons why. But I want to stick with the text. I want to stick with the word of God. And over these next four or five verses that we're going to close with, I want to give you five responses from the text. Let's look at them. Verse 30. He says, why are we also in danger every hour? Why are we also in danger every hour? My first response to the gospel is this. We serve him even to the point of losing our life. Now, I understand this passage is more applicable for the Christians living in Iraq, in Pakistan, in Afghanistan, and other parts of the country. But but we serve him even to the point of losing our own life. Three questions for you about three, three ancient um, people in Scripture. Question number one, why do you think Stephen offered himself up to the stones that crushed his body? Why didn't he fight back? Whoa, Stephen, why didn't, why was he, how was he able to endure that stoning? I believe it's in um, Acts, Acts chapter 9 or 9 or 10, why was he able to endure that stoning? Because he knew there was eternal life. And he knew that there was going to be a resurrection. 
Church history tells us that uh, Peter, uh, after the fire in Rome, they went to crucify him. He insisted on being crucified upside down. Church fathers say that his actual quote was, I'm not worthy to be crucified in the same manner as my Lord. How was Peter able to face that? Because he believed he was completely convinced in a resurrection. How about the Apostle Paul? Church history tells us after that fire in Rome, his head was laid on the guillotine. Knowing that there's this knife going to come down and sever your head, how was he able to endure that? By believing in a resurrection and knowing that Jesus is the resurrection and the life. That's what kept them going. What made these men endure throughout church history? The martyrs, people that have been persecuted, people who have lost their life for the gospel. What kept them going? What kept them going in light of the danger that they face every hour, verse 30, is they believed in a resurrection. And they was going to let nothing get in their way. Our God is an awesome God. And he will triumph. And we owe our very lives to him. Verse 31. I affirm, brethren, by the boasting in you, which I have in Christ Jesus, our Lord, I die daily. Second response to the gospel is this. We die daily to the desires of the flesh and our sinful appetite. Sin comes knocking on our door every day, every week. Temptations to lie, to lust, to steal, to, to disobey God. And we have to come to a place where we say, God, I'm going to die to my flesh today and worship you and serve you in this moment and not give in to that temptation. we got to die daily. we got to die daily to, our, to the desires of our flesh. Verse 32 he says, uh, if from human motives I have fought with wild beasts at Ephesus, what does it profit me? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Everything is useless if there's no resurrection. Everything in life is useless, is useless, is worthless, and there's no point in continuing and going forward if there is no resurrection from the dead. But what is, what is the whole thesis of this chapter? That his resurrection from the dead is a fact that we can bank our eternity on. Amen? Amen. Verse 33. That was two responses. Let's look at a couple more. It says, do not be deceived. Bad company corrupts good morals. The third response is this. We surround ourselves with people that will build us up and push us in the right direction in walking with God. Bad company corrupts good morals. You, who you hang around with is who you will become. Who you hang around is who you will become. Who you surround yourself with will eventually bleed into your life. So important that you have, you know, we don't separate ourselves from the world. We still keep our friends and I've got Lots of friends that aren't Christian, aren't saved, that I'm, I'm great friends with. But I'm careful at the same time that I have those friendships that I make sure I have uh, brothers and sisters in Christ to surround myself with. And to make sure the Bible says just iron sharpens iron, so one man sharpens another. we got to have that. we got to surround ourselves with people who build each other up. Verse 34, I see two responses in here. He says, become sober-minded 
as you ought and stop sinning, for some have no knowledge of God. I speak this to your shame. The fourth response is this. We need to think clearly about our decisions. Your decisions have consequences. Your decisions have consequences. We need to understand that we need to ask ourselves, the decision I'm making as a believer in Christ, as a mom, as a dad, as an adult, how will it affect other people? How, how will it affect other people? He says, be sober-minded. In other words, think clearly. You know, I, I, I'm so guilty in my life of not thinking clearly, just going with the flow, just kind of a hodgepodge, just kind of a eh, whatever, not putting no thought into things. That's a dangerous place to be. we got to think clearly and be sober-minded. It means be clear in your thought. Be clear in your intentions. Understand what's taking place because our decisions affect other people. And then he says in verse 34, he says, become sober-minded as you ought. Think clearly. Uh, and it says, and stop sinning. The fifth response to the truth of, of Christ's bodily resurrection is this, that we live a holy, dedicated life that we, we live a holy, um, dedicated life. There, there came a point in my life as, as, a, as a Christian, you know what? Okay, not perfect, okay? None of you are, and I am not either. And, and sometimes we sin weekly, sometimes we sin daily in our struggle and our fight against sin, okay? Romans 8, 1, before I talk about what I'm going to say, there's therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, okay? There's no condemnation. But there was this war within me. And I came to a point where I said, I'm going to put the axe to this lust. I'm going to put an axe to this adultery of the mind. Where I'm going to, I'm, 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 I just got mad. Not with nobody. I got mad with myself. I got mad with myself. And I said, you know what? I'm going to put this thing to death. I'm, I'm, I'm going to take this bull by the horns. I'm going to rock and roll. I'm going to move forward. And I am going to sever this struggle, this fight that I'm in. Sometimes we have to take drastic measures. Sometimes we have to take drastic measures, remove things from our life that's causing us to fall into temptation. Because, man, I'm, like I said, I want to live to be 90. I want to live a long life. But I want to live in light of eternity. I want to live in light of eternity and serve my king because he is risen from the dead. So the fifth response is live a holy, dedicated life. Man, declare a war on the fight that you're in. I have no doubt, probably, I haven't arrived. Some of you haven't arrived, but I have no doubt that we all have our battles. Rodney's got his battles. I've got my battles. John Nelson's got his battles. Man, just declare an all-out war. Say, man, I am going to conquer this thing. Holy Spirit, fill me, use me. God, let your word change my heart, change my mind. And just declare an all-out war, man. I'm, I'm, I'm going to do this thing. I'm going to do it for you, Lord Jesus. I'm going to do it for your glory. I'm not going to put myself in places where I'll be compromised. Last night, as I was um, working on my sermon, I was listening to that song about resurrecting. And just listen to a bunch of songs about resurrection. And, and I, just jotted, I just jotted these notes down. I want to read it to you. This is 10 o'clock last night. I'm in my study. 
and, and this is what I wrote down. The thoughts that I feel like the Lord was speaking to my heart. Our God is an awesome God. His name is Jesus. He will triumph. Too many Christians walk in defeat. I will say I lead the way. And, and, and I've been, there's been seasons in my life where I've led the way in walking in defeat. We let our circumstances dictate our spiritual life. There's the problem. We let our, don't let your circumstances dictate your spiritual life. Life throws us a curveball too. Things go south with our children, with our family, with relationships, with our wars against sin and our fight and our battles. But don't let your circumstances dictate your relationship. Don't let them dictate your spiritual life. If you believe in his resurrection and his power is in you, then you, my friend, along with me and everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord, can live in that triumphal procession following our King as we celebrate his victory over sin and death. Amen? Amen. Amen. I love you guys. I hope you take this message to heart. I hope it lifts. There's some people here that are struggling, I know. And remember, our God is an awesome God, and he will triumph. Let's pray. Father God in heaven, we thank you, Lord, that you will triumph. And we rejoice in that biblical truth that you have shown us as we've opened your word this morning. Thank you for your resurrection. Lord, as we move forward now, God, in this series through 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and we look, how, is it, how are we raised God, I just pray that you just give us hungry hearts to learn these truths from this chapter. And then when we get to the passage, that we will not all sleep. Help us to celebrate it and to rejoice in it. God, I pray that um, this message spoken this morning will go in your people's hearts and it will um, reverberate into other people's lives. It will spread. Give us that great hope that we have in you and let us walk in victory. Lord, we love you and we praise you and we thank you for this morning. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.